Welcome to this week's episode of Uncovered for Pole Dancers, a podcast created by pole dancers for pole dancers. I'm your host, Stephanie Quinn. Today, I am joined by Simone, the pole physio. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I love being here. I know every time I put up a post to be like, who should I have on the podcast? It's always have Simone back. Or <laughs> like I'm part of the furniture now. <laughs> you you are. I think you're the most returning guest that I've ever had, actually. So Woo. we'll just have to make you an honorary coast, a co-host. <laughs> a coast. I like that. <laughs> a coast, yeah. <laughs> we can roll with that. Sorry. Already distracted. <laughs> <laughs> We're already, we both said as we hit because Simone and I can talk for hours. We both said uh, before we hit record, it's like this can't take too long because we both got things to do today and we're already (laughs) off to a a dribbling start, which is amazing. (laughs) But anyway, today we are going to shed light on some really important topics in poll. But first, before we dive into this, I want to acknowledge um, the sudden passing of a poll community member at a poll competition recently after they experienced sudden cardiac arrest, um, which it has spread through the community. I know there's a lot of people who have seen this on social media um, and and definitely reached out to me in regards to this. I'm not sure if you're the same, Simone. So today we just want to talk about safety effectively in the community and really break down what first aid is or how we should be seeing this in in the community, whether it be at a pole dancing competition, in-house, national level, or in our studios. So I just want to start off with something really basic. And Simone, I just want to start off with like, what is first aid? Yeah. Um, so first aid is, in simple terms, the provision of immediate care to an injured individual. Um, and it's provision of that first aid until the injury resolves um, or is adequately taken care of or until uh, medical assistance takes over. So the primary objective of first aid is to preserve life um, and prevent deterioration until that help arrives. And so um, for most people, first aid doesn't require additional medical assistance. Um, So it's the first aider's role in those situations to just deal with uh, the scenario at hand and then promote recovery for that individual but then um, for many situations um, the the individual will require assistance and then medical um, help will then take over so it's kind of that intermediate um, or interim care and it's really important that we get um, early access to first aid in many situations to prevent deterioration so um, what we talk about with the within the first aid and the medical community is that early access to care allows for um, the chain of survival um, so uh, sorry I'm just going to go Steph you know me I'll ramble but um, chain of survival. <laughs> you know like yes I know <laughs> chain of survival I'm just going to throw all these terms out there straight away so early access to care early access to CPR early access to defibrillation and then early access to advanced care so life support and other medical intervention why is this important for us to have it in pole dancing competitions or pole dancing studios? Yeah, so uh, pole, as we've chatted about many times, it's um, it's a dangerous sport. <laughs> um, we love it um, and we advocate strongly for it, but um, it is a sport with many risks and 
many injuries and quite quite serious injuries can occur. Um, you know, we've got injuries that are mild all the way from like, you know, minor cuts and grazes and pole bruises through to the more serious. We're looking at things like spinal cord injuries and potentially sudden cardiac arrest. So if we don't have access to first aid within our studios and within pole competitions, um, then for the more severe injuries, then we are significantly increasing the the chance of deterioration and fatality in those situations. Um, whereas early access to first aid can actually prevent, well, not prevent, but um, reduce the risk of the fatality occurring. And we'll talk about some of those stats um, in a little bit. Um, but it also can, for many people, uh, improve the outcomes of their injury. So appropriate injury management for, say, a spinal cord injury um, by someone who's first aid qualified can reduce um, potentially the severity of the injury if it's appropriately managed compared to someone who isn't first aid qualified that might be moving the individual inappropriately, et cetera. Yeah, and I know um, we the next one we were sort of going to go on to is why is it important for individuals regardless of whether you're in a pole dancing studio or a pole dancing competition to be first aid qualified yeah i think um i from a personal point of view i straight away go i would hope that if i had an incident occur personally to myself at a studio that i'm surrounded by first aid qualified individuals that know um, the appropriate line of action what to do to care for me um so i do for others as to what i wish for them to be able to do for myself um so that's my personal um, point of view but there is a legal requirement for studios as well depending on their industry so um fitness australia and steph you might be able to give me more information on this i believe it's a, a legal requirement in australia for there to be a first aid qualified staff member at any or at all um fitness facilities and so in australia pole dance studios are considered a fitness facility so um i believe that first aid staff are legal it's a legal requirement at, at any point. So um, in Australia, all uh, teachers should be first aid qualified, um, mm. or at least there should be one member of staff at least present on the site at all times that's first aid qualified. And that requires three, three yearly updates within Australia for your first aid certificate and uh, yearly CPR updates as well. That might differ um, with different countries, and I imagine it does. Um, I would like to think it doesn't. I'd like to think that it's a bare minimum that worldwide that there should be a first aid qualified uh, individual at any time on at any pole studio across the world. Um, but, yeah, so that there is definitely the legal side of things and the insurance point of view, but I, um, yeah. From a personal point of view, I would like to think that every pole dancer deserves the right to feel safe when training and when competing. And, you know, that comes down to many different factors from the apparatus and the environment, but also to the greater situation as to if something medically did occur, there was the right individual there to be able to provide assistance. Yeah, 100%. And I support what you're saying from in terms of we do need to have first aid qualified members in studio at all time. I've made it a blanket rule across my studio and it was like that prior to me owning it that even our receptionist must be first aid qualified. So every single employee um, must have a current first aid and a current CPR. If they're new um, employee, just say we've got a new staff member um, instructor coming on board, we they've got a leeway 
to get that, but they're never allowed to be in the studio on their own with, yeah. with members of the, um, of the community. So that's sort of the way we operate. But I know I first became an instructor in 2015. I obviously, a part of that, I had to get my CPR and my first aid. And within two days, I didn't even have my certificate back yet. A girl I worked with fainted and stopped breathing and I had to start CPR. And I was, so it's not just in studios. And I was also involved in quite a horrific car accident a few years ago. And I was able to, in the end, I didn't have to um, do any first aid. I was probably in a lot of freaking shock, yeah. but <laughs> I was able to, I knew the basics when I needed it. However, on that note, if something really bad is happening and it's not in a pole dancing studio, the triple zero, the people on, on the phone yeah. are amazing at talking you through those things too. So they, they are definitely really good support from that perspective. Yeah. So when it comes to studios and like pole dancing competitions, we've sort of talked about some of the risk already. What is it that we should be seeing as, let's start with competitions. Yeah. What is it that we should be seeing at a competition um, in from a first aid care perspective? Because I know you provide first aid care for some of the national competitions in Australia. Yeah. What is like, what is the standard or what should we be looking at? So this is a hard one to answer because it depends on the competition. Um, and it's also the industry standard um, is not uniform across Australia. So there will be different requirements per different venues, per different councils and different states and so forth. So um, let's take Victoria, which is, um, you know, the state that I'm living in in Australia, and it's a requirement for events um, that require council permit to have licensed first aid attendees. And so that is, I, as far as I'm aware, one of the only states in Australia that requires that. Um, and what that means is, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I'm a first aider. I, I have first aid uh, qualifications, and as a physiotherapist, I'm, you know, certainly go above and beyond in terms of my medical knowledge. But um, to be a licensed first aider is an additional thing, and that is usually the the uniformed officers. So that's your St John's ambulance um, individuals, so you know, uh, people who are actually employed by first aid companies. So they're required to actually have a license, and that is um, something that the Victorian government put in in 2021. So it's under a new um, act, um, the First Aid Services Act that um, basically is to standardise first aid care at all events or all public events um, commercially. So that's completely different than Queensland. So yeah. um, there's no requirement for a licensed first aid individual um, at public events there. They just have to be first aid qualified. Uh, so it means you could go to a music festival, for example, in Queensland and um, whilst you'd think that most of them probably most of the first aid um, officers at those events will probably be St John's ambulances. There's there's technically no legal requirement for them to hold that particular level of licence. So there's no industry standard across the board in certain states. Um, what does that mean for pole competitions though? It's, it's probably a little bit different. I think um, what it comes down to is the numbers at the pole competition and the council rules. So um, let's say... 
uh, your event held, you know, 500 people, it would probably require a council permit to hold that event. So therefore, you're subject to council rulings per first aid requirements. And so that individual council will have a stipulated um, uh, first aid services management plan. And usually, so from what I've researched across Australia, usually if you've got an event with 500 people, it would be a requirement to have licensed first aid officers or equivalent, so depending on the state. So you'd be required to have two St. John's ambulance members on, on site. Um, so two St. John first aid services on site. They don't have to be ambulance paramedics. Mm. Yeah. So, and then as that number increases, the number of first aid officers on site is also going to increase. Um, so say if you have 1,500 people on site for a major event, then you may have up to four first aid officers there. So people who are uh, qualified and that's sort of their, their line of work as opposed to just a random first aid Um if so is you, this also, when yeah. we talk about this, is it, does it also take into um, consideration risks? And I ask that question because yeah. I think about a pole dancing competition and the public in that, they're just all sitting in seats, generally yeah. speaking. And if you have 1,500 people there, the risk is not high, high. but you have 1,500 people at a music, comp uh, com a music festival, yes. it increases. So do they, does it change based on the risk? It does. It absolutely does. And so that then comes down to individual council requirement and they'll do like a risk yeah. matrix to actually determine what's, what's appropriate. Um, certain events with higher numbers, they'll actually work with the ambulance of the state. So again, this is, this is purely based on Australia, but, um, St. John's and Ambulance Victoria will work together to, to create a risk matrix for that particular event. Um, and based on that, they'll determine the appropriate number of first aid officers. So if you're not sure, say if you're holding a major event, if you're not sure the appropriate number of first aid officers, it's not up to you to really determine that reach out to the first aid um, company and they'll actually do a scope of the event and be able to provide you with that information. So, you know, you might have 1,500 participants there, but considering most of them are spectators, that's a lower risk, they might only require two first aid officers to be on site because, you know, like I said, it's not a music festival where there's increased risk of alcohol and drug taking and all of that. Um, yeah. But as a part of like the risk assessment, um, there needs to be that event plan. There needs to be an emerg emergency management plan for the event. There needs to be a medical plan and there needs to be mapping of the event occurring as to where those first aid officers are going to be positioned um, in the case of emergency. So there's a lot that goes into it for the bigger events. So it can get really lost on the small events like in terms of like well we know that you know for 1500 people you know 10,000 people of course there's going to be first aid officers but you know what happens when I've only got a couple of hundred people at my event and it kind of or I'm running an in-house studio competition with like a hundred yeah. people exactly yeah. so because like let's say um so pole icon for example is almost 2000 yeah. or over 2000 seats i think right so there are first mm -hmm. aid licensed first aid officers there um to provide support for the crowd um and then i'm also there on the day providing backstage support for the pole dancers specifically and I, that's my mm -hmm. duty of care first aid officers they've got all the spectators same for miss pole dance australia exact same situation a few less i think it's like 1600 at at Miss Pole Dance. So we're talking mm. about big crowds there. Um, as soon as you start mm. talking about the smaller competitions, it comes down again to, I guess, council uh, rulings. So um, yeah, everyone's under their own local council or where the, the, the competition's being held is obviously where the, the rules are being applied. So for example, um, if 
I'm holding a competition locally that's only a couple hundred people, I have to determine whether I need a council permit for that event. Mm -hmm. And if I do, then I'm going to be subject to council um, legislation or, or regulations there. So they may turn around and say, well, for a couple hundred people, um, well, you don't require a St. John's member, but there needs to be a medical emergency management plan. And then as a part of that, it's up to you as an individual to determine what's appropriate. So this is where the grey area really sits um, from a legislation point of view in Australia. Um, there are, And it will change council to council. Some councils will say, absolutely, you need a first aider there. Like it's an absolute requirement. And then other councils will not have anything about that in their event plan. And it, so it's very up and down it, it can be really challenging and so I understand why, why it's really challenging for event organizers of smaller competitions at the moment they're probably all freaking out a little bit around the world um you know seeing what's happened going well do I need a first aid officer at my event do I need like you know say not John's ambulance or paramedic or equivalent or you know mm. can I get away with um someone who's first aid qualified like do I need a defib all this sort of stuff um when there is no set in stone requirement legally um so it, it isn't for the smaller events um legally it isn't mandatory to have a licensed first aid service officer or a dfib on site and that's where things get really scary from a poll competition point of view because whilst it's not mandatory i would say it's essential um so in uh, it um you know, it's again going to depend on on different factors. So, an in studio competition versus, say, um, I look at Flaunted, for example, a um, competition mm. in New South Wales with a couple hundred people in attendance. Um, again, they they have you know myself or a team member there present to provide first aid services. Uh, we're not licensed St John ambulance or um, first aid officers, but we're there providing first aid service to everyone at the competition, um, and that falls under the small like the smaller number category um yeah a studio competition um say there's like 50 people there i still think that there needs to be a first aid qualified individual but it doesn't need to be again a saint john's um first aid officer mm. it probably can be someone who's first aid qualified at the studio themselves and that's appropriate um other thing to take in consideration because there's so many different variables here um a lot of those uh, let's call them medium-sized competitions, like maybe like the mm. 200, 300, 400 people. So they don't quite hit that 500 mark that requires actual um, St. John's presence. Oh, yeah. Um, you can hire or get a volunteer first aid officer, someone who's done their first aid training. They just they provide first aid certificate. Um And they may not feel comfortable providing first aid <laughs> because it's easy to provide first, like to get a, first aid certificate isn't it like it's it's a day course every couple of years um but they might not have much experience like hands-on experience providing first aid so they how do i explain this while she'd like to hope that the humanity of the situation kicks in and they'll, they'll you know do their best in in that um in that moment they also might freak out and panic so it's um, one thing to get someone who is first aid qualified, but also someone that's willing to be the first aid <laughs> um, qualified individual on the day and uh, not going to be like, oh, yeah, we got a first aid here. That's fine. And expecting that they'll just mm. jump in and do it all. Um, because, because yeah, they can definitely in shot in those moments. Yeah. And I purely speak from the experience that I had, um, not in pole, but in the car accident. 
it was really an interesting moment for me as a first aid qualified person. I went, I need to do something. But also I had no idea why I was in the car accident. I was just in it. It all happened very fast. And I, my next thought was, do I have a legal requirement here? And then, but also my net, like the other thing that happened was there was Ross and I who were in the car. He's like, legged it. He's like, nah, don't want a bar of it. And he's not first aid qualified, but he was like, I don't want to go near this. Whereas I was next minute on the other side of the highway, having like looking at this individual. So it, it, fight and flight comes into play and not everybody, regardless of whether you're first aid qualified or not, not everybody can actually step up. And that was a really interesting situation for us to be like, there's two people who've had the same experience, but both reacted completely differently. Absolutely. And you don't know until, let's say you probably do know before the moment, but you probably don't really know in completeness until that moment. Um, I've been faced with many different first aid scenarios where, um, you know, over time you become calmer and calmer and calmer when they do occur, Um, you know, and and it can be anything from the more severe first aid uh, situations to the milder ones. Had one recently that I would deem moderate and, you know, the individual was not in a great state at the time, but, I'm almost so calm when emergency occurs. People kind of get more concerned because I'm so calm. They then feel the need to speak up and kind of like crowd around the individual. And I'm just like, no, like, give me a moment, give this individual a moment, and I'll let you know what to do at the appropriate times. Whereas, you know, someone who's never experienced uh, a medical emergency before, they could potentially just be panicking, freaking out, not knowing what to do. And whilst we've got doctors ABCD in the back of our mind, hopefully, for those of you who are first aid qualified, or even if you're not, you may have heard of that before. Um, from a CPR point of view, that should hopefully be going through your mind. It might not because you might be there going, what the hell are those letters again? Like, what do they stand for? You might be mm. literally having those moments. There's been so many stories about people who have had to uh, commence CPR, but they haven't actually gone through the first few steps. They've just gone straight to compressions. They haven't checked the airways. They haven't mm-hmm. checked to see if the individual is breathing. They haven't sent for help. They've forgotten to call triple zero um, in those situations. So you just don't know how the individual is going to respond. And you know, I had this conversation with an event organizer recently um, because um, they're looking at getting an SMA qualified trainer to be first data for the event. So Sports Medicine Australia which is an organization that I'm a part of um, who are fabulous. They cover a lot of the um, sports coverage for most weekend games for like community, you know, football, netball, basketball, all of those things. So they provide all those services. They're required to be first aid qualified. They um, get dirty every weekend. They have lots of hands-on experience. A lot of them, though, their hands-on experience is taping ankles. So whilst they're first aid qualified, they may actually have a physio or a doctor that they actually work with who does all the first aid stuff. So it's important to just check with anyone who uh, you're getting to be first aider for an event, um, what their experience is and how comfortable they feel in medical emergencies or situations because they may be, again, first aid qualified, but how do you, do you know how they're actually going to respond? So these are just things to th- consider if you're putting together yeah. an event. Yeah. And it's also one thing we do in every team meeting is we go through Dr. ABCD. Yeah, we yep. go D, yep. We go through that as a team. And, I mean, they all know it off by heart Good. now. And we talk about it and how it might play out in the studio, like and what those things could look like. So, and that was something that Renee actually brought in after she went to a first aid train. She's like, 
we need to talk about this more. And I'm like, I agree. So we now do it in every team meeting. So the one thing that comes to mind there is like running through that with your first aider prior to a competition to, to, to tick those boxes and be like, okay, what could this look like? Yeah. I also guess I want to make a point of um, saying for competitions, I'd like for people to be really prepared for um, the worst, uh, expecting that the worst doesn't happen. I always say that every competition when I, Mm. um, and I kind of feel like the pessimist when I go into sponsorship as a part of sponsorship for, um, for a lot of pole competitions across Australia, I fly to these places to be there to provide first aid um, on the day. And I always um, that really annoying person, but you can understand why, um, that always asks event organizers, do they have a defib on site? Do they have a stretcher on site? And I'm like, I pester until I find out this information. And if I don't, if they don't have one, I, we organize it so that we, we know that there's something on site. Um, but I want to, um, so wrapping back to what I was initially going to say, I want to make a point of saying that, um, whilst you want everyone who's providing first aid to feel really comfortable, um, if an emergency situation does happen and there's someone there who um, doesn't know first aid and it's the best you've got, please don't feel, for anyone who's listening who's not first aid qualified, mm. I'd love for you to go get first aid qualified or at least get CPR. Um, but if you don't have it, that just shouldn't stop you from providing first aid. You don't need to be first aid qualified to provide first aid if the person is unconscious call or even conscious obviously as well but I'm just specifically thinking about the more serious uh, conditions if someone's conscious call triple zero and get information as to what to do next but if they are unconscious you could be that person that saves their life so it's really important that you call triple zero and get information as to how to proceed um but just whilst we're talking about um I guess doctors ABCD is it worthwhile quickly going through the acronyms for people? I know there'll be people out there yeah. who go, I know this, like I've got this. I don't need you guys any. can skip the next 30 seconds. Go yeah, the next 30 <laughs> but seconds yes, I think it is important. I think it is. Yeah. So, um, so doctors ABCD, we're looking at, um, the first, this is basically the protocol that we follow in Australia. I'm assuming it's probably similar worldwide. Um, but it's what we follow when it comes to, um, uh, providing first aid. So. We're looking for if there's an individual laying there on the ground, we're looking to see if there's any danger. So we're protecting ourselves first. We have no legal requirement to provide first aid if there is a, a potential danger to ourselves. So if, you know, the person is in the middle of a highway, if there's cars passing by, um, that is a dangerous situation for ourselves. If we're not able to, you know, uh, remove the danger, then absolutely, um, you know, we do not want to proceed with um, providing the next step. We'll call for the appropriate services. Other things include live wires with like, you know, water, um, you know, loud noises and distractions and things like that, that could potentially propose a, a health risk to us. So assess the situation. Don't just run over there, figure out first what's going on. Next thing is looking for a response. So once you've determined there's no um, danger, look to see if the individual actually has a response. There's been many a story of people passed out, you know, the next day um, in the park and they just have a really nasty hangover, but the, you know, individual's gone to like shake them thinking that they, you know, potentially suffered a cardiac arrest, which was, you know, great of them to be that proactive. Um, but you might want to do it in a, um, a bit more of a gentle approach initially because they, you know, could be a passed out individually. So, you know, asking, can you hear me? 
slowly approaching them, open your eyes, what's your name, can you squeeze my hand? If they're not responding to verbal commands, you wanna then provide some tactile cueing, so squeezing your hands just very gently, putting your hands in theirs, seeing if they squeeze. If they're not responding to that, you can squeeze a little bit firmer. Um, and then if they're still not responding to that, you could squeeze firmly around the shoulder area. So some people can have absent seizures where they're actually conscious, but they are appearing to be unconscious. So um, they might not be able to verbally respond, but they can physically respond. So they might be able to open their eyes, for example, um, or they might be able to like move their fingers. And then obviously you're still calling for help, but you're not gonna then comp uh, provide compressions if someone is actually conscious and breathing. So mm -hmm. things to consider there. Next thing, send for help, call triple zero, get onto that straight away. Uh, if people are around the area, if you, um, you know, you can get, you know, put them in charge of things. Get a defib. First thing I do is you defib right now. <laughs> Maybe not that rude, but pretty much go find the defib. <laughs> if there's too many people around, if you're the first aid officer and you're very comfortable with the situation, send people away if they're one, just like making things, the situation worse, but two, send them for pillows mm. and blankets. Like the, you don't know when you need pillows and blankets. Send them for scissors, just yeah. random stuff. You might not ever need it, but if you need to put a defib on someone and uh, their clothing is hard to work around, you're just cutting through that. So if you don't have access to that straight away, yeah. get onto it. Um, you're looking for, uh, the next thing is airway, looking for obstructions, because if you're about to commence CPR and potentially providing um, breaths to that airway, if they have an obstruction in the mouth, so if they have, I, I straight away as a physio think about like a mouth guard, Probably not going to see that in the pole dance world, the <laughs> mouth guard. No, but, <laughs> but that makes sense as a physio. <laughs> yeah, I think about have they fallen? Do they have loose um, teeth? Like have they potentially knocked some teeth? Uh, um, yeah. Have, uh, you know, potentially have they vomited? Uh, you know, quite a, a lot of times with CPR that does happen. It's not, a, a you know, the most um, gorgeous experience for people. So you need to clear the airway in those situations. Once the airway is clear, you're looking for is that person breathing normally? So we're not even providing compressions at this point for anyone who's at mm. home going, wow, this is, you know, a whole new world for me. You're just looking and, you know, trying to help this person. If they are breathing, you're putting them into a recovery position on their side. Obviously, you've called for help in the meantime. Help will be on its way. But you don't leave. As soon as you start, mm. you know, first aid, unless it's a danger to yourself, you don't leave. Wait for someone to come and take over because at any point a person who's breathing could suddenly become unconscious. So you have to, you know, stay yep. there and provide that first aid. Um, and then from there we're looking at um, if the person's not breathing. So if there's no um, rise and fall of their chest um, appropriately over 10 seconds, if there's no consistent breath from their mouth so you can feel it on your cheek, you can listen for those normal breath sounds. Um, if they're not um, providing those or if their just body's not naturally doing that, then you're going to look at going into the next step, which is um, the compressions. Um, I just also want to flag that with breathing, if the individual is gurgling, if they're making breath-like noises but they're not actually breathing at a somewhat normal steady rate, that's not breathing. That body can actually mm -hmm. make some weird sounds when it comes to um, breathing that um, it's not mm. quite. So if it's not a consistent rise and fall in the chest, if it's like a gasp for like air occasionally, that's not a breath. Um, yeah. Compressions, middle of the of the chest, middle middle of the sternum. Um, you're going to put hands on top of each other. You're going to press down. You're going to press down to about a third of the chest depth, and you're going to provide 
30 compressions at a steady pace. And then if you feel comfortable, you provide two rescue breaths every after every 30 compressions. There is no legal requirement that says that you have to provide those breaths. So if you are an individual who's like, I would do the whole first aid thing minus the breathing, that's okay. I get it. It's been with mm. post-COVID times. There is research to show that just the compressions can be enough for people. However, if you're comfortable to, it would be an additional benefit to get some oxygen around the person you're providing first aid to. But if you just for your own personal reasons don't want to provide those rescue breaths, that's okay. In amongst all of this craziness, you're popping that defib on. So someone's brought that defib back, you're straight onto it. Get that defib on, it can save lives. So that was a bit longer than 30 seconds, but I think it's important. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would agree. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. It's like, yes, it is important. Yeah. But, no, because um, if you're laughing at so, me, taking longer than 30 seconds. <laughs> that's what I'm laughing at. I'm like, hmm, maybe I should have just prepared the listeners correctly and be like, come back in half an hour. No, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so look, we've ended on DFib here yes. and there's been a lot of discussion around DFib yes. and not like, and I will say, even for myself as a studio owner, um, prior to all of this, we've yeah. had a lot of discussions about defibs in the studio, and we were under the assumption that, up until recently, under the assumption that all service stations needed to have defibs on sites. No. Yeah, but <laughs> we found out recently because we are literally behind a service station, yeah. so we were like. Cool, like worst case, and we talked about this in our scenarios to go, this happens. We talk about, as you said, like working in teams because normally we would have at least two instructors on. I think there's one day in the week we only have one. Yep. So we're like when, when stuff happens, we need to work in teams and one person is calling for help, one person's um, yep. helping the person, and then the other one's going to get the defib. Yeah. So we recently went to the service station to be like, hey, where's your defib? Like, if we ever need it, how can we ask for it? And they're like, oh, no, we don't have one. Yeah. But, oh, okay. So I'd, I went down a rabbit hole looking for this and struggled to completely comprehend mm -hmm. it, yeah. I guess. Um, so defibs, what is the requirement? There I don't know if that's the right question to leave Yeah, with. no, that's, a, that's the right question. There is none. And it's scary. So there was a, um, a parliamentary officer a couple years ago tried to get a bill into place which would make defibs mandatory in all public spaces and it never made it to the floor um, as far as I'm aware. Um, that's, in again, in Australia we're talking about that. Mm. Um, it, it's not mandatory for a public place to have a defib but most public places uh, will have defibs. Um, the easiest thing to do is to find your state's ambulance service and to look on their website and they'll usually have like a locate a defib. Um, so Ambulance Victoria. Oh, what they do. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Ambulance Victoria last night, I was did a quick little defib search of my area. There's one five minutes up the road from me, another one five minutes away, et cetera. And um, obviously I'm calling triple zero if I need a defib. But in the meantime, if I have multiple people, I could get another individual to either call up that place and be like, it's an emergency, send someone down with a defib or I'm coming to get it myself. So depending on how quick. Mm -hmm. um, the rough time of an ambulance in Australia is 15 minutes. 
for a code one, sorry, I should say for a code one, <laughs> uh, medical emergency yeah. for, for a sudden cardiac arrest, not for everything, <laughs> um, but for a sudden cardiac arrest, that's the average time. Um, so if you know the defib is two minutes from, you know, wherever you are, um, go get it. It can, it can, getting a defib on sooner than 15 minutes can save that life. Um, so it, it's really quite important that we get access to it. Um, so when it comes to studios and competitions, uh, it unfortunately, depending on the size of the competition, it often isn't mandatory that DFib is on site. I disagree with that strongly. However, for those competitions that have more than 500 or so people per the council permit requirements, if they require a first aid officer to be present, then it's mandatory for the DFib to be with that person. So if you hire St. John's, yeah, exactly. So if you hire St. John's um, first aid officer, they will have a DFib with them. So therefore, you, it's a requirement to have a DFib at those events. So again, it comes down to event um, risk management um, and, and planning. So I, um, I would encourage, strongly encourage all pole competitions to have a DFib on site um, uh, and if mm -hmm. you can't get, get a defib on site know where your closest defib is and if it's more than a five minute drive it's probably too far um, you, your best call is you know triple zero at that point um, but make sure it's uh, documented in your um, emergency management plan and just be really aware that that is a significant risk um, of that your um, competition is taking from a liability point of view and you know think about insurance and so forth and and what your insurer requires of you when you're running a poll competition um i will that's a really important point yeah. around the liability sorry i just yeah. want to jump in <laughs> your business add-on um, yeah from i don't know that people completely comprehend the responsibility as a director of a business like the liability is you at the end of the day you are personally liable for a lot whether that is a loss of money and that's normally how you think about it um it's normally a loss of money but also if something happens that you've neglected you've got like you've probably got insurance and insurance can can help cover that um but i would just do your research into yeah. that as well as a director of a business there are additional liabilities um of upon us to make sure that we're doing the correct thing yeah and it's really interesting reading some comments recently um depending on different countries um if you're if you have access to defib but it's not being regularly serviced or updated um mm. if there's any issues with that you could be considered negligible so all yeah. of those things are really important and depending on different countries uh legal requirements and laws um that can mean different things for you as an individual as an event organizer so in australia here um it's a requirement to service your dfib every year so if you have a dfib yeah. it is a it is a requirement um also for anyone who is in australia if you do have a dfib um if you have access to it please register it with your local ambulance because there is um an app out there called good sam um good samaritan and so there are individuals who um are registered first aiders that are uh registered with this app and if they get a call, they'll get a notification effectively from triple zero saying that there is a first aid incident nearby. And if they have access to a DFib or if they can see where a DFib is, they can actually potentially go and get the DFib, bring it to that incident close, uh, quicker than what an ambulance might. Um, so, so it's really important that if you do have access to a DFib to register it with your um, local ambulance. Yeah. Um, and if you're not too sure yeah. where to get it serviced, then, you know, the ambulance service in your area will be able to 
guide you and so forth. And I, I know we're talking a lot about like get a defib quick, get it on, but there is a lot of evidence to show why we need to get a defib on quickly. It's going to be so, like we should probably jump into the statistics. Yeah, let's jump into the stats on defibs. So um, there, there's always going to be more research on this area to prove the effectiveness of it. But um, so the studies have shown that they significantly improve the survival rate in cases of sudden cardiac arrest. So um, the American Heart Association is probably the, the association we often refer to when it comes to these stats. Um, they suggest that within the first three to five minutes after collapse, um, getting a defib on early can increase survival rates by as much as 70%, um, with some studies showing up to 74%. Um, so that's the first three to five minutes. So this is, it's crucial. Those early minutes of CPR and first aid are so important um, for that individual who has collapsed. Uh, for every minute that passes after that, it's approximately a 10% um, a less chance of survival. Um, so approximately 10%. Um, if application of a defib and the use of a defib is delayed for longer than 10 minutes, the chance of survival of a sudden cardiac arrest drops to less than 5%. So we're talking about the difference between a 5% chance of survival to 74%. So it's really crucial that we get a defib on as soon as we can. And so access within those th first three to five minutes, is it's huge. It's so important. Um, the other thing I want to point out, though, is that a defib won't work for everything. So it needs to be a shockable rhythm. Most of the time when someone suffers a sudden, sudden cardiac arrest, um, there's a couple of com uh, common rhythms that our heart goes into um, that are shockable. And so the defib will be able to assist with that. When you apply a defib, um, for those of you who have done first aid training, you'll, you'll recognize the voice. It will talk you through the commands. It will tell you shockable rhythm, you know, please stand back mm. and you'll, you'll be you know, advised to, to provide a shock um, versus it'll be like no shockable rhythm detected. So it will tell you the defib won't shock the individual or won't won't allow you the option to provide the shock to the individual if it's not a shockable rhythm. So if someone doesn't have a beat, if their heart is not, you know, not pumping at all, um, it's not going to advise a shock. If they're in some degree of fibrillation and the heart is trying to work but it's, you know, providing half um you know, not not really contracting properly, and it's got some degree of electrical activity that's appropriate to be shockable. The idea is the defib will shock it, and it will restart the heart so that it can actually provide appropriate pumping action to get blood around. Because that's it. If we can get blood pumping, that's what the compressions are doing. They're pumping blood, pumping oxygen around the body in those situations, um, so that we can get oxygen to the brain. As soon as we lack that oxygen to brain. That's when we're considering brain damage. So the sooner we can get a defib onto an individual, the sooner we can get, well, hopefully the sooner we can get the heart pumping, the sooner we can get oxygen to the brain, the reduced risk of brain damage. So even if we're looking at um, a person surviving a sudden cardiac arrest, the ability to actually improve their outcomes is significantly higher when we can get a defib on sooner as opposed to someone going through 25, 30 minutes of CPR, manual compressions, mm -hmm. and then recovering from that because there's no chance of a full guaranteed um, uh, recovery for, for those individuals. They may still suffer some degree of, 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 of you know, brain damage. So um, we'd rather do CPR than not. And it's really important that I don't want anyone to, to hear that and go, well, why do we bother? We want to do that for that individual um, mm. so that they have the best chance of survival and best chance of life, but get a defib on early. It's really crucial. 
So if somebody falls and hits her head, you might not have to be, you like a defib might not, is not going to be relevant in those situations. No, but still put a defib on. So because okay. what will happen, that's a, that's actually a really good point. So say if someone falls yeah. and hits their head and becomes unconscious, um, but they're breathing, you're still doing CPR. Yeah. yeah. So anyone who's not breathing, um, they are doing CPR. Um, if they are mm-hmm. breathing, if um, you've been guided to by triple zero to put them into a recovery position, if you have the defibs on and they lose, um, if they stop breathing, then it's there ready to go. So always, always, yep. always in those situations, just have the defib ready to go for the more like serious mm-hmm. medical conditions. Um, if someone's fallen, they've slipped, you know, down the street, they've hurt their knee, don't put a defib on for that. It's not required. Obviously, risk assessment is, is needed for these, yeah. these situations. Um, but yeah, for something that is a more serious medical emergency, put the defib on, have it there ready to go. If the person is um, unconscious but breathing, um, you let's talk about liability from a first aider point of view because I know people worry about this. If someone is unconscious, mm. it is um, from a first aid perspective, uh, it is implied consent. If they are conscious, um, then it is not implied consent. You need to get their consent to provide first aid to that individual. But if they are unconscious, then it is implied consent that um, you can commence for first aid. And you, there has never, yeah. ever been a successful law case in Australia against any first aider for a, providing first aid in, it's, it's under the Good Samaritan Act, effectively. Yeah, I was um, going to say, when I was doing my research, it's like if you start first aid, then you're generally covered under the Good Samaritan Act. Absolutely, absolutely. And that will be, I'm sure, an under-equivalent acts anywhere else in the world. So, um, you know, mm. obviously different countries, there'll, there'll be some weird and wonderful stuff out there that I'm unaware about. Um, you know, who, who knows what could be happening in, you know, different parts of Europe or the Middle East, etc. <laughs> I don't know what the laws are in yeah. Ant- Antarctica, for example. Um, <laughs> so, so check with, you know. Interesting. <laughs> now I'm really curious. <laughs> I know. Maybe I'll have to search it now after this. Um, but yeah. So basically check with the, the governing body. Um, but generally yeah. Yeah, in Australia, and I'd like to think most places in the world, um, first aiders aren't liable under the Good Samaritan Act. So um, as long as uh, it's implied. Because they don't want to scare people <laughs> away from providing care. Absolutely. They don't, no. And that was the biggest like um, theme I found through it all when I was doing my research is they want people to feel comfortable with being able to act on it. Yeah. Um, so they do need to help protect those people and make them feel comfortable, especially in a world where we see suing increasing dramatically. Yes, I think correct. it's it's important that people can feel comfortable because it is a, as it is as much as it sounds bad, but the first thing you go into is a protection of yourself to be like, if I do this, what is going to be the outcome for me? Yeah, like yeah. how how is that going to impact me long term? Um, and legalities are generally something that come into play. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So what are the first aid must haves? Like and I oh. mean studio and competition I assume is going to have a very similar overlap. Yes, and I, I think it probably depends on the individual also. So like for example if I'm providing okay. first aid to a competition my must haves are going to be completely different than your must haves. Yeah. And I think it's also important yeah. to understand that um like if you have a doctor for example at a competition amazing but if the doctor doesn't have any equipment they're just effectively a first aider 
Mm. And a first aider is always going to be just a first aider. So they're not going to, if they have all the equipment in the world, but they don't have scope of practice to use that equipment, they're still a first aider. So I think that's, that's probably important to get out there. In terms of, um, their minimum sort of equipment that you should be looking at, um, again, I, I think it's, it should be mandatory. I think there actually should be laws that state that defibs are a requirement in all public places and that they're required for all sporting events so I, I strongly strongly believe that is a requirement um so i would whilst it's not mandatory currently in australia i would strongly encourage highly encourage that every competition has access to a defib um and the bare minimum like the smaller competitions like studio comps if you don't have access to a defib and i understand they can be anywhere from you know a couple grand to, through to 10 grand depending on your country um if you don't have access to it know where your closest defib is and have an emergency mm -hmm. management plan in place so you know how to get hold of it yep i have a question there's yep. now these defibs that are like what i'm like I need to talk. Yes. I, know, I know what you like. I, I need know. to put my hand up. Um, there are now these defibs that you are single-use defibs. Yes. Are they and they're they're relatively more cheaper. Are yeah. they still better to have, like, as let's say, as me as a studio who's running a small in-house competition where I can invest two hundred to four hundred dollars in one of these things? Are they better to have than not have one at all? Absolutely, without a doubt. Like, yeah early access to a defib is amazing um and so if they're like yeah they're three four hundred dollars for those single use defibs um just again make sure that they are serviced um appropriately so it's mm. really important to ensure that well the ones i were looking at um yes i uh, sorry the ones i was looking at was like they expire and when they expire you can actually just buy memberships and they'll send you a new Correct. one when they i was gonna say that quite often or when you use it yeah yeah exactly and then they'll replace it yes absolutely so yeah. if that's a um yeah if that's a better option for you absolutely that's yeah fabulous idea um that's for sure mm. yeah so yeah any access to defib is going to be way better than no access to a defib um yeah so defib definitely um uh slings are helpful so if going back to your previous question of like what other what equipment should we have at a first for first aid yes. of competition slings looking at fractures again ideally they don't happen but you don't want to send someone mm -hmm. off to hospital who has a dislocated shoulder or a fracture without a sling um dressings because most of the time the stuff that i treat like if you actually see me on first aid a day at competitions ask me what I've treated. I'll probably have given out three or four band-aids. I've probably, um, you know, had to hand out a tampon um, and probably provided a couple of bobby pins or safety pins to someone. That's usually what happens for most of the time when I am providing first aid. Mm -hmm. But I tell you what, when shit goes down, it goes down. And so it's it can turn yeah. really quickly. And it's, it's always been like that in the sporting world where I've had days where I'm like, oh, this has been a wonderful day, not a problem at all. And then the next week I've had to deal with three spinal cord injuries. So you honestly, yeah. like it, things can turn. So you just got to be ready for everything. So, you know, have all the bare minimum equipment for the basics and then have all the, um, you know, more intense equipment as well. Um, so, yeah, dressings, saline or wash to clear any sort of wounds, gloves as well for you to protect you and the individual. Thermal blankets are very helpful for anyone who may go in shock. Um, and then I also consider a stretcher um, for anyone who's not uh, first aid qualified um, and isn't sure in terms of how to stretch someone off. 
leave the individual where they are. It's safer to leave an individual than to move them, um, call an ambulance and they'll be able to assist. And if that means that a poll competition has to stop and you close curtains and, you know, audience waits, then so be it for that period of time. Um, but it's safer to not move an individual if you don't have appropriately qualified people there, particularly in the situation of a potential spinal cord injury and um, that may be the person being conscious and telling you that things don't feel great, but it also may be the person being conscious and being like, no, I just don't feel okay, but nothing's wrong. I can feel every part of my body. It can still be a suspected spinal cord injury. So unless you have appropriate equipment, I've seen that happen where someone has actually had a significant head um, hit and, you know, on questioning, they're like, no, no, no pins and needles. I can wiggle my toes. I've got full movement of my body. Everything feels normal. Um, and then they've been moved and it was a um, spinal cord injury that was quite considerable. And um, then they started to deteriorate afterwards. So if you're ever not in doubt, don't move the individual until appropriate first aid care is uh, on the scene. Mm. Yep. So that's even don't put them into recovery, just leave them? Um, if, yeah, it's a hard one. Um, first aid, right. no, that's that's fine. Um, I, I had this conversation quite a fair bit with physios and doctors and uh, first aid providers. Per first aid requirements, um, you are required to put that individual into recovery if they have sustained an injury. However, moving their neck is not going to be the smartest thing to do. Um, for an individual with a spinal cord injury, it can significantly compromise their outcomes. So we talk about log rolling individuals, um, so where someone stabilises their neck and, and holds them, literally holds them. I quite often have had to lie on the ground where I'm stabilising a spine and trying to keep the spine in line with the rest of the body and I'm waiting there for 20, 30 minutes until, you know, paramedics have arrived for that individual. Yeah. Um, and there have been situations where I remember quite vividly um, a guy who, one of my uh, football players early on when, you know, I was a new physio and he had a significant spinal cord injury and um, landed face down, was con conscious at the time and um, literally in a pile of mud and was able to tell me, I can't feel my fingers, I can't feel, you know, pretty much most of my body, I can't move anything, but I can breathe. And I just went, we yeah. are keeping you here. I'm sorry, you're staying face down in the mud, but I'm not moving you. Mm -hmm. I, was, I, was, I, went, yeah. I basically talked him through the situation and went, there is you you have a suspected spinal cord injury at this point i it would you know it's very clear cut in this situation um you can breathe you you can you you're telling me that you are comfortably breathing we're not getting anything in your mouth where you know airways mm. not are being obstructed you're probably one of the somewhat <laughs> safe position to be in at this point until I get paramedics on site that's just not not appropriate for me to move you so you know it, it mm -hmm. does come down to um, clinical decision making and experience and um, if I did move him in that situation onto his side I would have had to be supported by at least four other individuals to appropriately log roll him and keep his neck stable and we were waiting for about 35 minutes for that particular individual to get paramedics on site so it does unfortunately depend on the day and how many other cardiac arrests mm. are occurring as to how quick an ambulance will be able to get out to you because they will always prioritise injuries based on the severity and they'll always send ambulances out to um, sudden cardiac arrests um, and strokes and, you know, high-grade medical um, issues over 
um, you know, say fractures, etc. So it's always going to depend yeah. on, on the situation. Um, but yeah, be aware of, um, for any first aid out there, be aware of the event um, management plan. And so know what to do. Um, I always think back to, you know, my many years spent of football and um, I, every different, every week I was at a different venue effectively. I need to, needed to know that venue's emergency uh, access points. So if we did have to call an ambulance, where is that ambulance going to come in from? Um, who's going to guide that ambulance? Mm -hmm. Quite often, you know, they're part of giant reserves. So they had to you know, have people flagging the ambulance to come in. Exact same with pole competitions. How is the ambulance going to get to this individual? Um, you know, what's the point of um, of entry for that person? Is there side state access? So, for example, at Pole Icon, mm. Luna Park, they have an, a beautiful event emergency management plan. So if an event um, did happen, I know that they're actually going to access via backway entrance where the, we, they don't have to deal with a whole bunch of people. Um, they are able to get direct access to side of stage um, and it's literally a seamless transfer if that did have to happen versus I know other um, uh, particular uh, locations around Australia to get access to stage is down a flight of steps, you know, turning around the corner mm. to then go down another flight of steps. So, you need to consider all of those things when you are providing first aid for an event. Yeah. Sorry, I di divulged yeah. again, but you know me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's all <laughs> very useful information. And I'm like, I need to uh, research event planning, um, emergency yeah. planning, yeah. Um, even just templates. So I have that there for myself when we run stuff yeah. in the studio. I think it's better. It's good to, it's obviously something that, I already know the housekeeping of my studio and you do that when you have events to be like, fire exits are here and this will happen. So just yeah. putting that into a document. So Absolutely. everybody can An emergency safe. response plan. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, an em yes, emergency response plan. Yeah. And um, I was going to say a lot, of, um, a lot of ambulance services state-wise will have a plan um, ready to go so that like as in they, they'll have like mm. a format a template for you ready to go i know new yes. south wales yeah. do so they're they've got yeah. one that um you can basically just go onto their ambulance website and you can download that and use that as, as a template as a guider guidance starter. yeah so yeah. definitely check with your um your state's um ambulance services and determine what resource, resources they've got check with st john's as well they're a brilliant resource for the community um mm. so yeah definitely look um look that up and for any event um, organizer when in doubt you want to you want to always go for more as opposed to less you don't want to compromise on the safety of the individual so um, when in doubt get a first aid officer there on site um, if you're not sure um, and get your hands on a defib so if you can you know if you're if you're concerned and I think everyone has a right to be concerned and should be concerned um, you can um, pay small fees to St. John's, or I don't know what their fees are. I shouldn't say small fees. It could be considerable, but you can hire a St. Mm. John's um, person to be on site for your competition if you're um, wanting to be extra um, sure and and uh, ensure that all your patrons are being well take, taken care of. Having a, cert, um, a certified St. John's officer on site is the safest thing to do. Yep. Yeah. Thank you so much for all of this. Is there anything you wanted to finish off with today? No, probably just a recap of like the, the key things, which is like. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a good idea. There's, there's a lot. lot. <laughs> <laughs> there was, there was a lot. Um, so I guess 
you know, as the event organizer, you have a legal, you have a moral obligation to ensure the safety of your staff, your attendees, um, you know, the pole dancers, aerialists to your event. So just ensure that you are thoroughly um, assessing the risk and managing those appropriately. Um, and that includes, you know, the smaller events all the way through to the larger events. Mm -hmm. uh, figure out what's appropriate for your event. If you're not too sure, call up St. John's and ask them what their advice would be in that situation for the number. So if you can't get a clear answer from local council, call up, um, you know, your local first aid service and see what they would suggest. Look for, um, you know, how many people are going to be on site to provide first aid. So whether that's a licensed officer or not, um, check the hours that they're going to be on site for as well. When I'm there at a competition, I'm there all the way from tech runs all the way through to the end of the night. It's a long day, but it could be from 10 a.m. through to midnight or later. So ensure that you've got first aid there for the whole time. Figure out how many staff there are. Check out what their qualifications are. Um, so if you've got a first aider that that's their first aid, like that's all they've got is a first aid certificate, that's okay. But just check check in with them and see how comfortable comfortable they are managing injuries um, or like, you know, the, the spectrum of things that they're happy to cover. Um, and if they're not happy to cover the more serious, figure out an, a management plan so that you know what's going to happen in those situations. And that's for the smaller competitions, obviously for the bigger competitions. You should be uh, looking at getting someone who is very happy to cover everything. There should be no ifs or buts about it. You might have to employ someone in that situation. Um, the, whilst I said before, it's not mandatory to have a first aid officer for smaller events. So smaller being anyone less, anything less than, you know, a couple of hundred, but it is really encouraged. Um, I would definitely say those um, 200, 300, 400 absolutely needs to be a first aid officer on site um, and ideally a DFib on site as well. Um, and anything 500 or more absolutely needs a licensed first aid officer and a DFib on site. Um, most public places don't have a DFib. Um, sorry, a lot of public places do have a DFib, but it's not a legal requirement for them to. So check where your DFibs are as well. Um, and that was their local ambulance. Yeah, um, local ambulance service. And check, um, you know, figure out where um, the DFib is going to be positioned as well. Mm. Um, quite often I go to events and I'll be like, where's the DFib? <laughs> it's like one of the first things I'll do. I need to mm. know where it is. Um, sometimes buildings will have a DFib. I won't bring a DFib. And their requirement is that the DFib stays there. So I, I yeah. if I remove the DFib, an alarm goes off. So yep. figure out all of those logistics as well. And, you know, if the DFib is at front of house and you're at back of house providing service to, you know, the dancers side of stage, how is that DFib going to get from there to you if an emergency happens? Like, do you have a walkie-talkie to, you know, call up front of house in that situation? Do you have a phone number? So, again, figure out the event response. Um, if you're lucky enough to have um, medical capabilities at the event, then wonderful. So think about things like if there's a doctor, is there oxygen, is there IV fluids, is there medications, is there analgesia, things like that. Ne that's next level. Um, that's very unusual for a pole competition. But again, mm -hmm. a doctor without that sort of equipment is a first aid officer. So figure out what equipment's going to be there at the event and figure out the, the management plan for what will happen in those situations think that's everything I think that's everything. Yeah. yeah so um yeah I guess these are ways of which we can help keep dancers safe um whether it yep. be in our studios or at pole competitions and like we said like it is obviously a complex topic to to dig in and find out what the legal requirements are but 
I think this is a really good start for people who are running competitions or running studios to get a feel. And it, I think, gives them places now to go to do the research to put themselves and their communities in the best positions they need to be in. Yeah. And I just want to reiterate that my strong stance personally is that CPR is a skill that everyone should know. So for anyone listening to this podcast that hasn't, um, and I, I know it's, it's, a, it's um, for a better word, can be uh, a little bit of a hassle every year to do your CPR. I get it. I understand. It's, it's um, whilst that's a horrible thing to say, I can understand the, um, the annoyance behind it. It can save someone's life. So please, for anyone out there, um, consider doing your CPR if you haven't done it before and keep it regularly updated. There are small changes that usually happen um, most years. And if you can, in addition, do a first aid certificate, that would be wonderful because you never know when you need it. Um, it's, it yes, really I mean, is. all the times I've ever used any of my CPR first aid qualifications, none of them have been in my studio. Yeah. So you, yeah. you never know when you're going to need it. And um, Oh, a few things just ran through my head then, but as a studio owner, we run an annual uh, first aid CPR day and then yeah. we just, we bring in the officer um, and we put it out to our community and they can come, they can oh. keep them up to date. We do it at the same time. We're not the only ones that do that. There are many others in um, the local community that I know also do that. So that could be an idea as a studio owner. I and that really gives- love that idea. Thank you for doing that for your community. That sort of stuff is brilliant and it, it really is putting community first. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, well and it means, you know what, it's really easy for my instructors because they know on this week in October, because ours lens in October, yep. our CPRs are done. Like you just come, um, you you instead of having to go seek out your own, you can just come do it with us. So that's an idea for those of you who run studios um and yeah might and might just make it easier because then you know the bulk of your staff if you need cpr and first aid trained and you get their certificates you don't have to follow them up so it also has operational benefits yeah absolutely a hundred percent and yeah i'm the same my my cpr gets updated at the start of every year i know when it has to happen it's kind of there's some things that just fall around the same time car service Mm. skin check (laughs) CPR, <laughs> CPR update. All the annual things. <laughs> All the annual things. So, you know, I, I like to group them in together because I'm going, have I done this? Have I done this? Have I done this? Yeah. 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 It's it. one of those Check. things that just should be done. And yeah, and then my other stance is that I, I do strongly believe that AEDs, automatic external defibrillation, um, defibrillators should be mandatory at all pole competitions and ideally in the future at every fitness um, location, I think there should be an AED. So um, yeah, whilst it's not currently mandatory, I, I believe that in a, a quite a um, dangerous sport um, and a high intense, very intense um, activity that we perform, um, it should be present yeah yeah amazing well thank you so much for your time today Simone thank you so much for having me and for bringing this topic to light to the community I appreciate you having me on board because I'm very passionate about it and obviously yeah um, like like we've said I attend so many pole competitions throughout the year to provide this sort of service so yeah really yeah you made sense when somebody reached out to me and like can you uncover this topic you were the first person I messaged I'm like I know the person I know the girl for the job. Um, <laughs> if you guys, so um, to the listeners, thank you for joining us today. I hope we were able to shed some light on 
safety in the pole community. If you have any questions, reach out to myself or Simone and we'll do the best to help you. But otherwise, those resources that we recommended for Australia, it's your ambulance service um, internationally. I'm sure if you followed the same route and you look into the um, emergency services that provide your country, you would likely be able to hopefully find something very similar. Anyway, until next time, we will see you soon. Bye.